0: talent, but my concern is not what talent level I am, but how well I'm producing with what God gave me. So we'll celebrate all day long a 10-talent person who's producing eight talents and overlook the one talent, and I just wonder how it's going to fare when we get to heaven, because one's reaching their redemptive potential and one's not, and so I just think if we would respect across the board, thank you for what you do, thank you for being on the team, thank you for what you, I just, that's where, that's my heartbeat right now.
1: Hey guys, this is Brian, and I'm Tony, and you're listening to the Crucial Conversation Podcast.
2: Brian, I am super excited about who we've got this evening. We have Pastor Steve Smith, Germantown, Tennessee. Pastor Smith, how are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great. Great to be on here with you.
2: Hey, so uh, for those of you who don't know, Pastor Smith is giving us some time after he traveled back from ALJC camp meeting. How was that?
0: It was awesome. It was a great time.
2: Well, I know you traveled all day, but we,
1: me and Brian greatly appreciate you taking this time
0: for it's us. It's an honor.
1: So I've got to ask you an important question right okay. out of the gate. Right. We didn't give you any forewarning of what we're going to discuss. Right. But I have to know because the listeners, this is what they want to know. All right. You've pastored in New York and in Memphis. Right. New York pizza or Memphis barbecue? Which is better? Oh my
0: goodness. (laughs) If you know me, I'm a foodie, so it just depends on what day it is. I love both. Um, If I had to pick one, it'd be Memphis barbecue.
2: Okay, this prompts the second question What's the best barbecue in Memphis?
0: Again, I'm a foodie, so it just depends on what you're looking for, uh, what day it is. I love Central Barbecue, love Germantown Commissary, love Rendezvous. Oh,
1: my. You know. No, 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 no. Yeah. We're Central boys over here. Yeah,
0: I like Central. I like Central. Oh, oh
1: we wow. are very loyal to Central Barbecue. Yeah. In fact, we had it before we came that's over to awesome. meet with you tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the one who got Tony turned on to Central Barbecue. Oh, man, I that's... absolutely love it. Yeah. Absolutely love it.
0: Yeah. Well, we've got one about five minutes that way, and then Germantown Commissary, five minutes that way, in car.
1: So that's our hey Monday night all you can eat ribs. Oh, that's it. Good stuff. (laughs) So if you're in the Memphis area, you need to check out one of these places. We got some good food here in the South. Yeah, Yeah, good stuff. Well, uh,
2: Pastor Smith, for those that do not know, Steve Smith, give us a rundown of who you are.
0: Well, you know, at this point, I'm pastor in Germantown, Tennessee. I'm a Memphis boy. 51 years of age, was born here, spent some time in southern Illinois, western Kentucky um, in a younger age, but came back um, in my sophomore year of high school, was in the Arkansas district until we went, my wife and I went to New York Metro uh, to start a church. That was in 2003 as Metro Missionaries, and we were in Westchester County until we came here uh, two years ago.
2: Well, for those who don't know, uh, Brother Steve Smith, his grandfather, was one of the great pioneers in the Illinois district. Um, My dad is uh, a part of that district still, and he is actually the presbyter over the church that your grandfather pastored. Yes. Yes. And that man had such a a fingerprint in that community. Yes, he did. Um, Tell us the coolest story about your grandfather.
0: Oh, my grandfather was one of a kind. Um, I don't know about the coolest story. Um, One of my best memories. They had prayer meeting. Of course, they had a lot of church, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Tuesday night, Thursday night, I think Saturday night. I mean, it was a ton of church. But then they had a – during the day, they had a prayer meeting – And so you probably know my cousin, Ron. Um, We would come during the summer, and we would be there to pray. And he had one of those short benches on the platform. So he prayed in the middle, and he kept me and Ron under his arms. Uh, It didn't do anything for his prayer life, I'm sure, but it did a lot for us, and it put an impact on us.
2: Let me tell you the funniest thing that ever happened while I was— uh, attending a service there um, My dad He was the assistant pastor In the town that he pastors in now But our pastor was the presbyter at the time So right. he would always send my dad down To help take care of the Caro Church Yes, And uh, my dad would get up And read his text And he would give the uh, microphone to Brother Burchett And say, Brother Burchett Will you please pray over uh, the sermon Brother Burchett got the microphone one time And said, Brother go for it. That was a great sermon <laughs> He said, We uh, we greatly appreciate you guys coming down, and he prayed a prayer of dismissal. (laughs) He was was hungry. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man,
0: I love Brother Burch. What a great guy! That's
2: awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oh, um. So, Brother Steve Smith, you you have held some pretty cool titles in the United Pentecostal Church. Uh, you are the Metro Missions Director, right? Uh, and you pastored in New York City. Yes. Tell me about the culture that's in New York City compared to Memphis, Tennessee.
0: It's a totally different culture, uh, but people are people wherever you go. Uh, I think the important thing about culture is understanding that there is no right or wrong culture. And we all have a tendency to like our culture the best, which is okay. But if you're going to if you're going to minister in a, effectively in another culture, you've got to understand. And it sounds super spiritual, but they're strongholds because every culture has its strongholds. We have our strongholds. And while it sounds super spiritual, I don't mean some big demonic thing. To me, strongholds are concepts that are held by the majority of people in that culture that are contrary to the Word of God, but they hold it. Wholeheartedly. And if we dissect our culture, we find things like that as well. But on the flip side, there are also, if you will, sweet spots in every culture toward the gospel. So New York was a very, um, of course, it was a melting pot a lot of Catholicism, so high respect for the ministry, uh, a lot of positives there, open doors. They always were willing to let you pray with them. They always were willing. Really? Yeah, always, because of the, um, you know, you think of that culture as being, man, totally godless, but in the community we lived in in Austin, there was a Christmas crib every year, and that meant it was an activity scene, and nobody would have dared argued against that because they were all Catholic, most of them, and they had a very strong belief system in that. So there were sweet spots I could get Bible studies because they didn't feel like they knew the Word of God, but they wanted to know the Word of God.
2: You know, that's an answer, I don't know about you, Brian. that I didn't expect to hear from New York City. Yeah, yeah. You know, when you think of New York City, you think of standoff, you know, rude, right. not the South.
0: Yeah, well, definitely not, yeah. Tell
2: me about the culture here in Memphis.
0: Yeah, Memphis is, you know, you're not going to have, oh, you're not going to have in Um, New York, the kind of bantering that we have, you can go into a restaurant and just banter with a waitress that you've never seen before. You're not going to have that in New York. Uh, There is the standoffishness. Uh, A lot of that comes from the fact that um, there's 20 million people there. They're not going to see you again, and they don't know whether they can trust you or not. Um, So you you do have that. In Memphis, what you face is people are—you can engage with them, but— Most of them have a pastor. They'll pray for them. I mean, they'll let you pray for them. They don't do a Bible study, but you can invite them to church. But they, I mean, when we go out and we do evangelism outreach once a month, most times people, what what we're doing, we're inviting them to our church, and they tell us which church they're going to, quite honestly. That was not the story in New York. Uh, So totally different culture.
1: So, with that, uh, obviously New York City's not the Bible Belt. No. Like we're, we have kind of here. Right. And so I'm curious though, because obviously it, it's different stories. And like you said, how in New York they were open to Bible studies. Right. So, how in New York and even here in Memphis? How do you go about actually initiating a Bible study with an individual? Yeah. And, and when you get that Bible study, where do you actually begin? Do you believe, begin in Genesis? Right. Or do you go straight to Acts 238? or yeah. How do you do that?
0: You know, I, I the best place to get a Bible study is at church, I think, people who are already coming. But then there are also other times doors open that you're able to talk to somebody. And I don't ask everybody about a Bible study, but when— there seems to be that hunger there. Uh, we move into it. I use uh, exploring God's word, so I start in Genesis, and man, take my time. Uh, and we meet in New York. All Bible studies, almost all of them, were in a third location: Starbucks, a diner, some place like that. Um, I do a lot of them around this table. Here, um, but wherever it works, and I started Genesis, and we're building a relationship, um, and we'll talk, and man, it takes me forever to get through 13 lessons of exploring God's Word, but the point is not getting through, the point is making a relationship and drawing them into a relationship with God.
1: I heard teaching a Bible study is almost like a marriage because Good. you're marrying them Good. to the Word of God, yeah. and so you go through all these different stages, just like right. in a marriage. Yeah, you have the honeymoon stage yes. when you first, and, it, and it, everything's driving right. until finally you hit a first conflict. Yes, and that may be something as simple as a question that's yes. been asked, and so because of that, you have to obviously resolve the conflict. Right, and that's where the growth comes Good. from. Yes, have you know? So obviously, with you you're saying an affirmation. So you agree that that's kind of how Bible studies tend to be. Yeah. You're going to flow through it, and then you're going to kind of hit a wall, and right. you got to figure it out, and you got to grow yes. together.
0: Well, you're going to get to a point in every Bible study with what you're teaching, conflicts with what they believe or what they've heard, and I want to get as much word in them as possible because once they get to that decision, you really, other than praying, you all bets are off, and they'll either decide to to follow the Word of God or really it's going to be over at that point, you know.
2: So before uh, we started this podcast, you told us that you know moving back to Memphis um, you know you you are you were excited because you are a Memphis guy right. Um, leaving New York and coming back here uh, that had to be very difficult right. Um, what did you leave back in New York City?
0: You know we left a ton of friends. We just went back, we've been here two years. we went back for summer vacation. Um, we have a senior that graduated this year, and so he wanted to go back to the high school graduation, who would have been a part of. So we left a lot of friends. Um, thankfully, we left a strong, thriving church. Uh, Donnie Willis is now the pastor. We were able to go to church there. Um, left a lot of memories. I mean, um, we we are totally different people than we were when we went to New York, and so um, at the early stage of New York, New York is very difficult to get a start, a church started. Uh, It's kind of, you know, because they're not, you can't just banter with them. You can't just get people in the loop. But it's funny, if you win one guy, then you win the influence with his whole family. Interesting. And so it's kind of a snowball effect. So for us, we, we, we left a lot of friends, a lot more friends than we probably even knew, a lot of impact, a lot of change on us. But in the early days of the church, we were begging God, you know, you hear the phrase, um, sometimes God sends a man or family to a, a city to start a church, some, or to build a church. Sometimes God sends him a family to build a family, and we were like, "Can it be both?" And fortunately, God answered that prayer. And so, I wouldn't take anything from my experience. I really never thought I was going to leave, um, but God knows how to direct us. And yeah. So
1: Metro Missions is is kind of your passion. I it, it was, is. It is because obviously you've gone from one metro city
0: to the right. other. Yes.
1: I'd like to uh, back us up uh, before we get too far into the conversation and see what was the story that got you from, because you were in West Memphis right. And um, for a little while, but in between West Memphis and Memphis right. isn't just a bridge, but for you or for us, literally, it's right. a bridge. We just cross it. Yes, You didn't just cross a bridge. You right. went all the way to, to New York. What was the story that took you from here, to New York City.
0: Well, it really started way back with a summer missions trip to L.A., and I don't think I was even in West Memphis yet. I'm um, at to look back at the timeline, but I went to L.A. was It was different than it is today. It was just me and another guy. We went to Glendale, California. Now David McGovern's there, but it was another church plant at that point. And really, the big takeaway was um, there's enough space in this world for me to do work for God if I'll make myself available. Um, and then when it came time after—I we was on full-time in West Memphis for 10 years, and it came time where my pastor and I were talking about, look, the next step. And it he was very plain. I want you to be on staff forever, but I also— Who was that pastor? Bobby McCool, Jr. Okay. So let's, let's look for the will of God. I tried out a few places. That just didn't work. That wasn't the deal. Um, and we went on vacation to the Northeast— And flying back over New York City, back in that day, you know, when I went on vacation, I took a break from everything, including God. So at the end of the week, I was half backslid. I was rested, but I was half backslid. And and I looked over the lights of New York City, and I started crying. Well, I'm not the leakiest guy in the world. (laughs) And my wife was like, are you crying? I said, yeah, but, you know, you'd have to be a pagan to look down at that many people with that few churches and not feel something. But I went home and told my pastor, he said, you know what the cool thing is? You don't know anybody there, and I don't know anybody there. If it's a God thing, he's going to work it out. So it wasn't long after, I was preaching in Wisconsin, in Madison, Wisconsin. Harold Linder, a friend of mine, was preaching in Moreau, Wisconsin. And we were supposed to do a joint, we were supposed to preach a joint youth rally on Friday night. We got together for lunch, and we didn't talk anything about the youth rally. We talked about New York. He said, hey, I'll get you connected, and you come stay with me and come check it out. And you know, most of those things are like, yeah, that'll never happen. Well, it wasn't long, Harold said, hey, come on out. And I came out and spent a week, and my wife and I both felt like we were born in the wrong part of the world. We just fit. It just, I mean, we went from the suburbs to inner city and loved it. Um, and the, the 14 years of our life there was just phenomenal. Wouldn't, wouldn't trade it for anything, but that's kind of how we got there.
1: It's interesting because I went to New York for the first time this last January. Yeah. And so on the flight, from we took a flight up from Memphis to Detroit, and to, from Detroit we went into the, the city. Right. And so I remember flying in. Of course, I was in the the daytime right. whenever I was coming in, and I was so excited to finally see that New York skyline. Yeah. And so we had our phones ready, right. and uh, we're leaning, out the, uh, lean, uh, leaning up against the window, and I remember seeing the Statue of Liberty for the first time. Yeah. And we took the picture and then I saw the financial district. Yeah. And you see the One World Trade Center and right. you saw the the Chrysler Building, the Empire State Building, and all those skyscrapers. Yes. And just like you said, I began to tear up as well. Yeah. I didn't expect that. And I and I felt like I'd heard the whisper of God in, in my impress into me saying, All those people have need of me. What are you yeah. gonna do about it? Wow. And wow. so like I said, I, I understand that that— it it really is it, it's it's mind blowing. me able yeah. to see because I'm from a small town of in Jonesboro was where I was born born and raised. Really, mm-hmm. sixty thousand people. Yeah. There's more people that live in New York than yeah. in my entire state. Right. And so it, it it's unreal. And so again, you I think I saw a statistic uh, that eighty percent of the American population lives within I think it's. 10 cities.
0: Yeah, it's that eastern seaboard. I mean, if you've ever seen a picture of the night satellite picture, it's like that, that area is just lit up. Uh, it is amazing. There are people everywhere.
2: Uh, Pastor, I would like to ask you a question. You obviously did a tremendous work in New York City. Coming back to Memphis, um, I mean, the church here is just a great group of people. They really are. And I want to ask you, when— It's time to retire as pastor. Right. What kind of legacy do you hope you've left?
0: Well, our passion here is because I'm a Memphis boy. We want, we want to own this city with the apostolic message, not just faith apostolic church, but all the apostolic churches. And there is this passion to plant churches um, all over Memphis. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I think we're making some headway. Some good things are happening. That's really, to me, the legacy of any pastor is what he produces as far as ministry. Um, ministers that either evolve in the church or go out and do it someplace else.
2: I want to ask you a minister's question here. Um, there is a lot of people that persuade you or they've been your mentor through, you know, spirituality and uh, help you be a better Christian. Um, is there a historical figure? Now, I'm not talking about a, my favorite preacher preach this message like you were talking before. It was Mark Morgan that really right. opened your eyes. But instead of...
1: What he's asking about is right over here, you got a bookshelf. You got Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I think I see (laughs) Thomas Jefferson on the side of a book, Theodore Roosevelt over there. Uh, I see a book that says 1776. Yes. So is there a historical figure? Tell me about
0: that. George Washington is my guy. And it's. I get um, more steam than I should when I read because it, it's not real popular to like George Washington, and so people sometimes historians der- historians deride him. But everything he did, there was nothing there. I mean, when you're talking about Valley Forge, I've driven from New York to Philly in January, let alone walking with no shoes. I mean, everything he did, he did it from nothing. And so part of that's my bent as a church planner, and, and my grandpa was that way as well. I just always admire the guy that goes and digs something out. Others may look and say, well, he never got beyond 35. Well, he got it started. Yeah. And if he hadn't have got it started, you couldn't have built it from there. So George Washington is my clear favorite.
1: It is mind blowing how there there seems to be almost a, a changing of the histories. Yeah, kind of like you're saying. Right. Is how George Washington was such a hero in his time. Yes. And now he's actually kind of a polarizing figure. Yeah,
0: he is. He I is. mean,
1: you talk about a man with such character. Yes. In that the one of the I think I can't remember exactly the exact quote of it, so I'll just kind of allude to uh, kind of what the tenor of a quote is that I have in mind is like how hey, you know really the true character of a leader when he's gives away power that's given to him.
0: Absolutely. How
1: he was had every opportunity to be yes. the first king yes. of, of the Americas. Absolutely. And he served his two terms yes and he kind of went away and that's and again th- this is kind of mind-blowing as well is there was a time in which presidents that serve their time in office yeah and then they just go home that's right but now they are always moving on to the yes. the, the, the presidency is almost a stepstone for that's right for the billions of dollars that yes. they can potentially earn right. and so uh but, but anyway i bring up the point to go back to the thing about how he's kind of a polarizing figure it it, it what What is your opinion about a culture that looks back on people and picks out their worst qualities,
0: yeah.
1: maybe even one of their most minor qualities, but they choose to remember them by their, their worst day right. rather than at their best day?
0: Yeah, I, I just—I find that the trend in culture uh, to feel like that we have the moral high ground, that we can look back at another generation and judge an individual— Man, that is just almost morally wrong. Now, I understand some of the things that they did, according to our understanding, is wrong. But everybody generally did certain things. And so it's not that we're condoning them, but to try to wipe history clean because they did things. I mean, future generations are going to do the same thing to our generation. And so I just think it's it's valuable to treat the, the past with respect, um, And and look for the best as opposed—I mean, I'm I'm in a quest, my family is, to go to all of the presidential sites. We went to Jefferson's, and we went to Madison Monroe this this, uh, um, summer. Actually, we went to uh, George W. Bush's and Bill Clinton's birthplace. So it doesn't matter if it's right or left. They were presidents. And so we go, and we're looking for the best and trying to learn what we can. So I I just hate that whole process.
2: I'm glad that we're kind of shifting this direction— uh, there's a question that I sent you that I'm very excited to hear um, your your thought process on. Uh, in your opinion, what would you say is the top three responsibilities of a pastor yeah. or a leader in the twenty first century church? because the twenty first century church is not the church that your grandfather passed. No, no. We have so much that are uh, so many things that are pulling our saints and children away from we that we have right. to battle against yes. in the twenty first century, right what would you say is the 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 top 3 responsibilities yep. of you right. pastoring in
0: Memphis well for me my top 3 are very clearly defined first is love the people um probably within the last few years there ha- there was a pastor an apostolic pastor that pastored a fairly large church over 1000 so there were some young guys asking him the question how do you do the how did do you do this and after a while he said how is never the question it's never how It's whether you can love this many people. And so we talk about love, but when you have a thousand people with all these different personalities, uh, you need love. So love is the first one. Then for me, lead and feed. Mm. Those are my responsibilities. And and leading is huge. I've got to lead. I'm really the architect of the culture of the church. But then feeding, uh, man, pastors, uh, Raymond Woodward said a few years ago that All of our preaching should have more teaching in it. They need to know when you step in the pulpit that you didn't just wake up and say, well, wow, i got to fill some time here. Let's see what I can come up with. But that you've been intentional about feeding and really done your homework to the very best of your ability.
1: So, uh, with with that uh, going back to that point about can you love that many yeah. people right so with that you obviously have to spend a lot of time with people
0: mm-hmm.
1: and, and and i assume a lot a fair majority of that time is spent counseling people uh, obviously people all come from different backgrounds they all have different hang-ups right. and struggles do you Do you see common themes whenever you're counseling with people that people are struggling with? And and how do you counsel people to overcome some of those big issues that, like I said, it seems like it reoccurs because obviously our audience isn't exclusive to the ministry. Uh, The majority of our audience is the members of those congregations. So the majority of our listeners are facing those same battles. And so uh, I'd like to ask you to, to... in a way, pastor those people for
0: yeah. a moment. Yeah, well, there's a lot of different things that, that people are going through, but the high-level principles, um, forgiveness is a huge thing. Some counselors say that if they could just teach people to forgive, that's 90% of their job. So forgiveness, bitterness kind of festers, and it creates problems. Selfishness gets us into the issue. I mean, we we typically uh, underestimate the enormous power of our flesh, our self, upon all of our relationships. And so forgiveness, selfishness. Then, if you get down to brass tacks, some pornography, things like that, um, a lot of times people don't want to bring that to you. But th- those issues are taking place. Uh, I think transparency and reality and all of that, and um, not browbeating. If somebody comes to you with an issue, obviously they're wanting help um and so finding some solutions way to to get over that and to be better i don't know if that's what you're looking for but
1: But how does that person forgive if the person that hurt them has never asked for
0: forgiveness? Well, that's a very good question, and oftentimes it doesn't happen. Um, To me, when you look at forgiveness, and there's a couple of very good books about that. One of them is by uh, Andy Smith. It's called The Eleventh Commandment. I think they have it at PPH. Phenomenal book. But the concept, you look at the parable um, where the guy is called before the king, and he owes more than the national debt. You know, and you do the math, the guy can't work that off in 100 lifetimes. And so the king forgives him, and then he goes out and somebody owes him lunch money, and he throws him in debtor's prison until he pays back the lunch money. He wasn't getting the whole concept. What you see is the king, one, was merciful to give that kind of thing. But secondly, the king sets example on forgiveness. He is saying— You know, I'm not gonna get that out of that guy anyway. And so I'm choosing not to try to collect an uncollectible debt. And so what we run into with unforgiveness is I know people who refuse to forgive people who are dead. Dead people can't ask for forgiveness. But whether they're dead or alive, you can't unsay a word, you can't undo a deed, you can't. Forgiveness is not a punishment for us, it's freedom for for us. And so while I'm forgiving somebody, when I don't forgive somebody, they hurt me and they're sleeping like a baby and I'm tossing and turning. And so by forgiveness, uh, there's some misconceptions. Forgiveness does not mean that what they did was right. It does not even mean that we have to reestablish a relationship. It, that that forgiveness, what they did may be a game changer in our relationship, but it means I'm not going to try to collect an uncollectible debt. I'm going to give that to God, let him take care of it, and, and move on. And some of that is, is a long-term process. It doesn't happen overnight.
2: So I want to ask you something about uh, for- what well, you were just talking about, forgiveness. Yeah. As a leader, maybe not even in a church but in a business or in a marriage or relationship, right. How do you admit that that there was a problem and how do you fix that problem yeah. before before you really hurt somebody or yeah. something? You know what I'm trying to say?
0: Yeah. Well, the first thing is to own. Just, you know, take what you do very seriously. Don't take yourself too seriously. So that means that you're gonna make mistakes. If you're leading, you're gonna make mistakes. And when you realize that you've made a mistake, own it. Um, I never have understood people who won't own it. Um, I use an analogy from time to time. If your favorite team is in the seventh game of the World Series and your favorite player just has a horrible game, I mean, he has five errors, he struck out every time, and he's the reason they lost, you want to hate him. You want him to, to be traded. But if he gets behind the microphone right after the game and says, sorry, I blew it, it, it was a horrible game, we had a great year, but, man, that last game I, I stunk I, I hope next year'll be better it's hard to hate a guy that owns his issues so I I'm, I'm
2: a Chicago coast fan so I get it <laughs> yeah you, <laughs> de-
0: you definitely do <laughs> but how to fix it I mean you first of all you sometimes you have to know who did it but a lot of times people get involved in blame games and so fix the problem not not blame um, and so as what according to what the the issue is you figure out how to make sure it doesn't happen again hopefully you know but it all comes really with honesty and transparency most things can it's almost like the love thing the issue is not how it's can you love and same thing with fixing issues if you'll be honest and nobody's trying to hide and act like it's but just own your responsibility um i tell our staff here don't don't ever surprise me if you did something goofy own it please please tell me because when somebody else comes to me i already know and and we we can work through a problem a lot better if we'll just be open we're gonna make mistakes
1: uh, so obviously, you run a volunteer-based team here, right? Uh, I would assume. Do you have full-time positions here in the church?
0: No, we have one uh, part-time staff, but not any full-time other so, than me. So
1: everybody's kind of in a, in a volunteer kind yes. of basis, right? And so obviously, you have to handle those mess ups in a in a kind of a unique situation, right? So Tony, I know you and I, we we are both managers where we work. Um, I work at the post office, and right. so the the office that I, I have, we've got. Um, I, I kind of had to. Be over about sixty people, uh, four, right. about fifty people a day okay. there, and so obviously there's conversations I have to have whenever yes. people aren't me- measuring up to a, a performance because right. where we work we have performance standards. Yes, everybody has to kind of meet in, in a certain standards. Uh, with me personally, I am horrible at having those tough conversations sure, sure. Of, They're of, not fun. of of being able to tell go to have to go to somebody and be like, hey, it's just. You're not cutting the mustard. I mean, right. there, some if you're doing your best, your best is ain't good enough.
0: Right. Yeah. And,
1: and Tony, yeah. I think you're probably better at it than I am at having well, those. I just conversations. have to. I
2: think I have to deal with it more often. Yeah. Yeah. And some of my drivers actually, uh, they listen to this podcast. But, yeah. So I gotta be very careful here. <laughs> but uh, you know, there is those times where you have to, to to have that hard conversation right with them. So I completely
1: get what you're talking about, Brian. So with it being a volunteer team, and what are some—in your context as a volunteer team, right. what advice would you give to the leader, uh, either in the business environment, to Tony and I, right. or to the pastor or or anyone that's listening? They run some kind of nonprofit organization, and they right. anybody that has people over them, uh, parents even, right. going to their kids, I, that can sometimes be hard— how do we approach things, and especially—I mean, obviously, you know, we have to be godly about it. Sure. How, how, do, how do we approach hard them, conversations, yeah, those yeah. hard conversations?
0: Well, for me, you know, we're trying to get the right people on the bus, and a church—God has a lot to do with that—but getting the right people in the right seats on the bus. So 90% of the battle in a church is not necessarily trying to get people to perform better. It's to make sure they're in the right seat— now, that becomes a problem when there's titles or microphones involved. Typically, they'll be fine to move if there's not a title or a microphone involved. But, you know, when they get in the right seat of the bus, they, they're they on this bus for a reason, and they've got a contribution to make. And so finding where they fit is the huge thing. Um, and, and everybody's different. I mean, God gives some one talent, some two talent, some five talent. And so finding where they fit is a huge thing. Now, if you need to... Where I would really focus more, say we we do ministry training, and if it's obvious uh, a minister just they're not they're not really preparing to, to speak. Now I can either not put them on the rotation, or I probably the more loving thing is to sit down and say, what's it look like? What are you doing to prepare? And so as much as possible in a nonprofit organization, you're trying to bring the best out of people um, without destroying them. Trying to help them do better and not. Not really rail on them, you know. I mean, you you want to build them up.
2: So you just alluded to my favorite parable in the Bible. Um, I want to ask you a question on that, mm-hmm. but I want to preface it by giving some rundown for those who don't know that parable. Um, there is a story that Jesus tells that uh, he gave. Uh, there was a guy that gave a guy one talent. To, uh, was it three talents and five? Yeah, talent,
0: two and five. Two and five.
2: Yeah, yeah. and. Um, one buried their treasure, the other two put theirs to work, doubled the money, blah, blah, blah. What do you tell the person who has the gifting right. that buries it?
0: Well, that that one's very difficult. And, and a lot of that is convincing them that they have something to contribute. One of the most powerful things I've ever heard on this side, on this issue, Bishop D.D. Davis in New York— um, I consider him my bishop. I heard him say one time, the stark reality is that most Christians are one-talent Christians. So if you have 100 people in your church, if you can get them all using their one talent, that's better than having two, three people that are using their five talents. And so letting people, and the talents usually are very natural. So we spiritualize everything. The, the talent may be, I knew a lady in West Memphis, she could cook, oh my goodness, like nobody's business. And if she was cooking men's prayer breakfast, Revival took over. <laughs> yes. Everybody wanted to be at men's prayer breakfast. That was her gift. And so I don't think it has to be the spiritual. It can be, but it, sometimes it's what you bring to the table um, and use what you have. Don't bury that. Don't. I mean, the one scripture that we all, I think we are all guilty of, I mean, regardless how much we think we love the Bible and we want to follow it, the scripture that says don't compare yourself among yourselves because when you do so, you're not wise— we all line up in the not wise category. We do that. And so whatever we have, we need to give it to God. It's just we preach about that from time to time. We try to make that a big deal. Whatever people's talents are, use it. Bring bring it to the table.
1: So I've read a few leadership books by John Maxwell. Yes. And one of the things that, that he kind of advocates to be a very effective leader is the ability to lead leaders. Yes, yes and when you talked about how it's kind of easy to move people around in different positions right. except for those that have microphones in their hand right because the people with microphones in their hands are leaders yeah yeah and so there is tremendous difficulty right. in having to reposition people that kind of have that inclination to lead but if you right. don't do it you kind of right. set yourself up for
0: failure absolutely absolutely and,
1: and so like i know like in in the business environment whenever the best employee on our job is the one who does something incorrectly. Yeah, That's the last one that I want to have to go and call them out on right. what they've done right. because they and they are a leader in what right. they do. They're good at what they do, right. but they had a bad day or had a bad moment. And, sure. but, and, but if you don't address it with one, then you really don't have grounds to right. stand on when it's the people that just, they can't seem to ever get it right. Yeah. Yeah. And so how hard is it to lead
0: leaders? Well, I would much rather lead leaders than followers. Personally, you lead them both. But leaders bring something to the table. But, again, you've got to be transparent. You've got to be comfortable in your own skin. Another John Maxwell uh, idea that I think is true, uh, he basically says if you're a 10 as a leader, you're comfortable with 11s and 12s around you. If you're a 7, I don't know the numbers exactly. You want 4 and 5s around you. If you're a 2 or 3, you want everybody else dead. So the the biggest the biggest bane to leadership is, um, how would you say it? Not self-centered, but a self-conscious leader that doesn't have confidence in themselves because they're always second-guessing people. Um, leaders um, are going to tell you what they think. Well, that's what I want. I, I don't want to get out and make... if they, You know, when we're meeting with the staff, look, don't let me get up and do something stupid. The one thing that is not admissible is for me to do something stupid and for you to come up, yeah, I didn't think that was going to work. Uh, it's not going to be well. We're, we're going to have issues because you, you needed to say that on the front end. But there's got to be some freedom to talk about that and security on the leader side of their calling um, and the commitment of people. Now, here's what leadership um, must have. It's, it's got to be a team, and we often talk about teams. But I've read some books about team that wasn't a team It was a blob, there was no head. And so leadership, we can talk about it in a closed room, but we've all got to be heading the same direction. And so that's what people get in issues with, you know, somebody else trying to lead the the team a different direction. That's never admissible. I mean, you, you just can't do that. If you're part of a team, you got to move in the same direction. You can challenge that direction to the leader, but you need to be moving in the same direction or you're not going to really uh, you know, achieve what you're wanting to achieve.
1: So I personally think – that I'm like a two? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> On a
0: scale of, yeah. um, I'm like a two. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> where do you think your number
0: is? Oh, I have no idea. That that would be, you know, where it comes to the, the talents and the leadership level, I don't know. But I know I'm fairly comfortable with leaders around me. Mm-hmm. Um, that I don't know where that puts me. God will have to decide that. And I'm just always trying to be as good as I can be. Um, Another thing on leading leaders, it's another John Maxwell concept. You really got to get comfortable with the whole coaching thing, which you guys, managers, you do that all the time, instead of what Maxwell calls gunny sacking. And some leaders just gunny sack. So you got this great guy up here, great gal. They do a few things, and you think, well, I really ought to talk to him about it, but you don't. And you just kind of stack it up together in this big sack, and then you explode. And they're thinking, well, I thought I was doing good. It's just not healthy. I think the the look of a coach, a basketball coach, it doesn't matter if it's Michael Jordan. It's like, hey, you could do this a little better. And I don't. You shouldn't always be nitpicking. For me, what works is more staff meetings, kind of keeping a list of it and saying, "Hey, I've noticed this. Let's work on And so it's a group, and our we've got some sharp folks. Normally, that takes care of it. You know, um, if not, don't don't be afraid to have that conversation.
2: So there was there has been times that I'm sure we could all. If we are being honest with ourselves, sit around this table and talk about there was a leader or a managed team of management in our secular jobs that you know if if I did what they were doing, it would be unacceptable. Yeah, yeah. Um, Has there ever been a time in your ministry or your walk with God where you felt a burnout to where you kind of let the church just lead itself almost? Yeah, I mean, How, how do you how do you prevent? You know that burnout.
0: Yeah, I I don't. I've never really totally been there. Um, The last few years in New York, I knew God was leading me somewhere else, but I was very um, adamant to make sure that I did my job. I mean, if God hadn't moved me, I was still there. Um, And so, where how I do it, I've got to watch my spiritual. Uh, energy level, I've got to watch my uh, physical energy level. When I'm just a passion worker, um, and my problems, and most pastors are, and I read some books every once in a while about lazy pastors, and maybe there are some in 2019, I think workaholism is a bigger issue. And so when I get very discouraged, when I get burnout, I know I need to pray, I need to rest, and I need to play. I need to go out with my family. I need to just do something I haven't done. You know, just just get my mind off of it. And I will rest. And as soon as I get rested up and prayed up, that passion comes right back.
2: I'm going to be very transparent right here, Pastor. There has been times in my life where it seems like prayer didn't work. Yeah. And you almost feel defeated right. after you've tried that time and time again. Um, has there... Ever been a time that that's happened to you? I, I, this is very personal. I apologize. Sure. I didn't sure. mean to throw you this. No, no. But how do you keep your spiritual level up when you don't feel like prayer is working?
0: Well, it's it sounds like a glib answer, but keep doing what you know to do. I've been there before. One of my favorite stories that I tell from time to time, and I could tell you all the names of the people and you would know, but to protect the innocent, I won't so there was a, a man who's very used to the gifts of the spirit and there was a pastor's wife, very well-known pastor's wife who died way too early. And the man who's used to the gifts of the spirit went to the funeral, family gathered around and said, hey, do you have a word for us? And he said, to be honest with you, God and I really aren't on good talking terms at the time. What he was saying was, I don't understand what he did in this situation, and I'm struggling with it. I think we are if we're honest, we go through times like that. Um, another very well-known pastor that I know of, very close to, one year I heard it said by one of his staff members, that pastor said, I don't think God's answered one of my prayers all year long. Well, he had. I mean, there were baptized people right and left, but we all go through those dark nights of the soul. Um, the best thing is just, just keep doing what you know to do. Keep Keep trying to pray. Keep trying to um, read the Word of God. For me, I usually read. I'm, I'm a voracious reader, but it's not because I just want to read. I'm reading myself through situations or I'm finding answers to things. Um, and I just will search books about my situation and keep reading. Um, and usually the big release to me, sometimes you find some keys that help. The bigger issue is you just find out you're you're not anno- you're not unusual, that other people have the same issues. So, whenever
1: the, the uh, back to kind of the, what I asked you about before with the counseling, yeah, whenever people are coming to you, do you give them that same advice? in that, um, well, if you're facing bitterness, here's a book on bitterness, yeah, and, and, and do you tr- try and encourage people because obviously that's how you've overcome before, right, right? And and probably everybody has their own ways of overcoming some things, right? But I could see the benefit of taking in and and growing from the the thing that you're facing. Yes. And that, I know with me, there would be things that I could probably go and do that and be more targeted in the way that I'm reading. Right. And that way, the things I'm overcoming, not am I getting the encouragement to get through it, right. but I'm growing through it.
0: Yes, yes. I do recommend books. And of course, it, it's really based on who you're talking to. Sometimes you're talking to somebody, you, you just know they're not a reader. And so if you can kind of crystallize the ideas to them, you might suggest the book, but you really don't think they're really going to read it, um, but I do that quite a bit, um, and that helps. For for example, um, I kind of had midlife crisis early on. There's a great book by Stephen Arderman about midlife crisis. In the introduction, I got what I needed, and he said, mm, you know, years ago there was no such thing as midlife crisis because nobody lived beyond fifty or sixty, and so now really the big issue is you're changing from what you can produce to what you could pour into the next generation. Like. Oh, I can do that, and that's a lot cheaper than a blonde, a gold chain, and a Corvette. You know. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so let, let There's me. A, uh, my my uh, one of the people I work with, actually I work for uh, my my direct boss. We were went to lunch one time, and he <laughs> he was talking about he how obviously he's a little bit older than I am, right. and so he's kind of in that midlife, and all of his friends are kind of in the midlife, yeah. and uh, they they. Kind of do their own thing if you know what I'm saying yeah. but you know they're they all say that it's it's not worth the blonde is not worth losing everything <laughs> no, that no. I have accumulated in my life to this point
0: <laughs> no way to no achieve. way no, way. no <laughs> so, way I
2: can I can I can relate not with the blonde but I can yeah. relate with um, <laughs> getting your answers for something you didn't expect to get so quickly right I went to Arkansas district camp or no it was Men's conference Arkansas District Men's Conference maybe I don't know 5 or 6 years ago and I was looking for answers. Yeah. And I had prayed the week before and fasted the week before specifically for God to give me a word. Right. And the two preachers there, I had no idea who they were going to be. Right. Um, but when I got there it was Elias Lamones <laughs> and it was uh, J H
0: Osborne. Oh wow.
2: And I say I hadn't heard of either one of these what guys. A team. But I hadn't heard of either one of these guys, <sighs> but however I, I said, God. Now I prayed and I fasted this entire this t- prior week for a word, and you're going to give me a guy who does not speak good English <laughs> and an old guy. There's no way I'm going to relate to. And, awesome. and JH Osborne walked up to the microphone. The very first thing anybody who knows me, I'm a diehard baseball fan. Yeah. And the very first thing JH Osborne talks about when he goes up to the to the microphone was a story about baseball. Are you going to be the guy who makes the ball or hits the ball? Wow. And I said, there is what I'm looking for. I can go home. And yeah. there was still probably six or seven sermons yeah. left. So I can completely relate yeah. to yeah. getting your answers from stuff that you did not expect to get your answers right. from. Right, right. But I want to uh, shift just a little bit. Um, I want to go back to uh, before you were called into the ministry. When you first got called into the ministry, how old were you?
0: Oh, I was probably sixteen, I think.
2: Sixteen. Yeah. Um, at what point did you become a minister? Because I know a little of your backstory. Yeah. You kind of struggled with it at the beginning. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Um, at, at what age did you finally accept that calling into the ministry?
0: You know, God started calling me, and I, you know, because Grandpa was in the ministry, my my dad had worked in the church was the pastor's right hand guy. The ministry was always such a big deal to me. It wasn't anything I ever wanted to do. I wanted to go in business. I wanted to make a lot of money, and so when God started dealing with me, I had to know. And I remember one night it was in West Memphis. I knelt down. I think knelt down after a Wednesday night service, kind of an altar call deal. Said, "God, I need. I need to know." And He had done everything to tell me. Um, I mean, I loved. uh, If you to me, when I was in that time of struggle while, I didn't know what to do. I loved it if a preacher got anywhere near the will of God. You know, I was being called into that. And I asked God, I've got to know. And part of the first time God ever spoke to me, he said, well, my sheep hear my voice. And that was the scripture out of John. I'd quizzed out of John. It mattered to me. Uh, From that point, I went to Uh, Brother McCool Sr., and he started using me pretty quickly as far as getting involved in ministry. He put me—coolest thing he ever did. He said, I want you to go in the kindergarten class, he said, because if you can learn to communicate the gospel to kindergartners, you'll be all right. And that was kind of the beginning, and it it just went from there.
2: So my follow-up question, what age were you at that age? Around
0: 16 in that age.
2: Okay, so did you have a plan— Or when did you get a plan to intentionally develop up as a minister?
0: You know, I really didn't have a plan initially. Um, You know, I I was going to go to Bible college right out of high school, and Brother McCool offered me the position to be a youth pastor. My dad, who had gone to Bible college, and none of us are anti-Bible college, he said, son, I went to Bible college, and I never had the opportunity to do what you're being offered right now. He said, so, you know, I jumped in there. I learned how to do youth ministry. In the process, I became a reader. Uh, that's probably. I think there's another question that deals with regrets. That's probably my biggest regret that because of my education, being I wished I had uh, get, had a focus on higher education uh, for me.
2: Let me follow up with one last question yeah. in ministry, and we're going to shift gears here. Uh, but is if there is one thing you could go back and change thus far in ministry, mm-hmm. what would it be?
0: It would be that that I would I would have focused on. Um, education, whether it be Bible college, uh, secular college. You know, the environment, it's kind of hard for us to believe. I'm 51, so we're talking several decades here. But the environment wasn't the same toward education then. Uh, It was almost looked down on, frowned on. Um, And so that's nobody's fault but me. But that's one of the things I wished I had done. It would have opened more doors uh, to ministry, and it would have been helpful.
1: So how many years of ministry total have you had now?
0: Oh, um, from 16 to 51, oh, goodness, I'm not great at Matthew. <laughs> Carry the two. You know, all uh, these
1: listeners are yelling,
2: it's blah, blah, blah. Yeah, they know. They and,
0: don't. and
1: none of us, he's getting his calculator yeah,
0: right, that's right now. <laughs> that's right. It's 35. 35 years. I've been, next year, next April, I will have been ordained for 25 years. And I can only remember that because it was the day of the Oklahoma City bombing. And so, but it, it's amazing it flies so fast.
1: There you know there's when you said that that you remembered something based around a tragedy just now, uh, what immediately popped in my mind is there's a lot of people out there that, they can remember different moments of their life based on yeah. tragedies that have happened. Right. Obviously, you were in New York,
0: and yes. everybody
1: knows where they were on 9/11. Yes. And there are people that they go through. They remember exactly where they were when they got the phone call that their yes. loved one had passed away, yes. or that they, you know, of course, in 35 years of ministry, you've seen people's lives get marked by tragedy. Right. How do you? when something tragic happens in your life whether it be a divorce you didn't see coming right. or or your children that that you dedicated to the lord yeah. suddenly they don't want anything to do with the, this this truth anymore right. whether it be they they're going to a life of substance or right. or ha- or even for, you know changing denominations and different uh, methods of faith how do you keep from your life being not just different moments marked by tragedy, but how do you keep your life from being defined by those tragedies?
0: That's a great question because you don't want the bitterness to hew everything of your life. Um, It takes time. People say time heals all things. Really, God heals all things, but it does take time. Um, There is a great song. uh, I've gotten older and kind of like some bluegrass stuff, but the Isaacs. Have a song, uh, and it's called "Keep Breathing," and it's talking about you're going through a difficulty, but wake up every morning, keep breathing, and I love the reality of the song, the realness it says, and it gets less hard. So I've been fortunate; I've never buried a spouse or a child. Uh, I've never had a child walk away, but all those things that you have never gone through divorce, all of those things, when the the things have happened in my life, that's what my wife and I bring up. This isn't a divorce. We're not burying a spouse or a child. Those are the big ones. Now, I pastor people who have gone through that, and you just keep going one step at a time, one day at a time. I've met people who let it define their life. How you do that, I'm just guessing. I've not been through that. I can give you the answer. But for the people I know, you just, again, keep doing what you know to do. Keep coming to church. Keep reading your Bible. Keep praying. Um, and it gets better. And it gets easy. You have a new normal, obviously, uh, and it'll never go back. Um, You know, that's one of those interesting things about the verse: "All things work together for the good of them that love the Lord." We preach that, and we believe that what that verse means is that everything in your life will always get better and better and better. Problem is, my understanding that's not the way that works. My mother and father both had strokes a couple of years ago. Uh, it's not going to get better. But you look at the next verse, and it talks about being conformed to the image of, of, of Christ. That's what's going to get better and better. So anything in our life that draws us closer to God, it really is a gift from God, regardless how painful it is. But I, I, don't, I can't experientially tell you how to deal with some of those things, but I've watched others do it very successfully.
1: Uh, So there's people in your congregation or in congregations past that have gone through all these different things that you you haven't faced. Right. Uh, Is it, um, in a way, harder—do you think that they—that there are people that— I'm, I'm not sure exactly how to say it. Right. Um, the only way I, I can kind of say it is actually with kind of a transition mm-hmm. to, 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 to bring it down more kind of the way our listeners would kind of see in a way I, can, I kind of in my brain see this connecting is that you've got a lot of people that uh, will say either on social media whenever they post something online, don't judge me until you've right. gone through what I've gone through right. or uh, – you know, until you've actually lived this kind of lifestyle, you can understand, right. uh, for instance, in, in, a, in the city that we live in, there is a new church that just opened up that has a... it's a biological woman that is now a man that just opened up a church. And so the people online were commenting about, you know, you can't say this to it. You can't say one way or the other an opinion of what that church stands for or who they are until you've actually had to go through that. Yeah. So how do you, you know, when we're, we're... kind of challenged in a way, if there's any kind of pushback ever, because we haven't had those direct experiences that people in the congregation have had. How do you still lead them? Obviously, the Bible is the Bible. right? But is there anything else that you would say along with that?
2: Before you answer, I will tell you a good situation or scenario like he's talking about. Um, There is a pastor that we know that does not have children. Yeah. How can he tell the saints in his church how to uh, parent yeah, their children?
0: Yeah. Well, on the tragedy, the things like death and things of that nature, uh, I think it's all uh, just care, pastoral care, because you're not really coming from a position of more high ground. You're not coming from a know-it-all position. Um, the best thing you can do when there's a great tragedy is just be there. I mean, if you got that relationship, just be there. And then in a lot of ways shut your mouth i mean and please don't quote all things work together for the good and then love the lord when they're looking at their loved ones so i don't think people expect you to have the answer they just want you to be there they just want you to care for them love them hug on them now the issue with parenting um I, I, again it's always transparency um if we, we're we going through family month right now at our church, and we've done several sessions on parenting, and I've started every session by saying we're not coming you, from you, to you from a counseling background. We're not coming to you from a more high ground. We're coming to you as fellow travelers. And so my pastor, Doug Davis Jr., and his wife have never had kids, but they can still teach uh, biblical principles from the Word of God. I think it's wise not to get real judgmental. Um, about how exactly it should happen because you've never been through that. Uh, it's it's just the age-old joke that, you know, you've had that person in your life that knows everything about parenting. I when I have kids. I'll never—and then they have one. And it amazingly changes the whole thing. So you've got to be very careful. I don't think that stops us from preaching the Word of God. But, you know, be honest. If you don't know—I mean, I tell guys who've never planted a church, don't— Don't go to church planner and act like you have. They'll sniff you out. I mean, you'll think what you're saying is smart, but the problem is you've never been in the labor and delivery room. You've read the book, but you've never gone through it. And so being open, transparent, teach the Word of God, but don't act like you've done it if you haven't.
2: I want to ask you a question um, that is— you know, I always say that all the time. I want to ask you a question. This is an interview. <laughs> That's, I always tell Tony, they're already agreed
1: to sit down with us. Okay, Why do you tell my okay, They I already you. know you want to ask him a question. <laughs> I want to ask you this question. It's yeah. uh, his nervous tick. Don't judge him. <laughs> <laughs> D- don't take the moral <laughs> high ground against Tony. Oh, That's right. <laughs> no, uh, I forgot where I was going with that question. <laughs> all right, let me follow up then. Yeah. So when you talk about... Oh, I ha- I got ha- it. Go no, 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 I've got this. Uh, so... Hey, I like what you said. I've never heard it put that way about. You don't always have to take the moral high ground. Yeah. So how does that relate to that question I had about? Again, social media is one of the worst yeah. things out there. Right. It, it's one of those. It's one of the worst of times. Yes. And it's the best of. Time. That's exactly where I was going. Yeah. yeah. You see people on Facebook that. Well, how? Why would you do this? Your kids have no hope anymore. Right. Or. Yep. You know, you see everything on there. You see people that they just comment, I'm praying for you. Right. And then you got the people that's quoting scriptures to them. Right. And then you got the people that are calling them out on their nonsense. Yes. How do you not take a moral high ground when you know what is morally right?
0: Right. Well, to me, Facebook is not a platform for me to preach from. Um, Man, we can go into social media etiquette and... Yeah, you know, I mean, I can't tell you how many people I've just deleted from social media because they're trying to get in a fight with me, and I don't even know who they are. Mm-hmm. I've never met them. And so I'm not trying to win any your arguments. Uh, but there are, I won't even get there are forums that I'm not a part of because it's constant arguing.
1: Okay. <laughs> I've been added on some forums before. Yeah. yeah. And I was on it for about two weeks. Yeah. And I said, well, I'm about to tell on what it is, so I'll just back up. <laughs> careful! On. But yeah. there, there were some forums that yeah. I was on that I that and, and, and you know I, I know it's bad to say I like a little drama. Yeah, I, yeah. Know, I know it's bad to say, but I yeah. like hearing yeah. a little drama. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I'm just like, if this is all this is, I don't want any part of it, and yeah. so I got off it. Now yeah. there was a few screenshots I took along the way because, like I said, I like. A yeah. drama. I mean, even
2: yeah, yeah. Even as Brian and I have started this podcast we've had people you know say you should have this guest on and they can they cuz they're, they're uh, an expert in this situ- or in this um, realm of, of spirituality right and it comes from a debate background yeah, you know yeah, uh, yeah. this this podcast is not to debate right. this is to show people you know we as Ministers, leaders, everyday people go right. through the same thing. There's yes. no, there's no, there is no sense in being shameful or or scared to talk about right. some of these issues. Absolutely. But with that being said, is there a specific subject or a topic that it seems like the church of today seem to shy away from?
0: Oh yeah, I, I think across the board, most pastors would say we don't talk about eternity enough, uh, I and mean, even in passing. We don't talk. It's, it's amazing to me, and and that includes me. I mean, if you look over the last two years, I don't know that I've preached a message totally on eternity. I try to do it annually. I don't get there. I try to do a couple, one on heaven, one on the, the alternative hell. Um, but it's amazing to me. We're so close to eternity, yet we talk about it less and less.
1: So obviously we're probably the most un-Bible literate uh society is the society of right. today right so it, to though the the unchurch uh, what they see when they see the church is it they just hear about you know love basically yeah, yeah. that's pretty much the overwhelming thing that they're gonna hear right. obviously there is that is the huge topic right and it's probably the most essential topic to right. discuss but there is with that that message of you will eternally stay somewhere. And so to an unbiblical literate culture is hell real? Because they would say, well how could
0: a loving God right. send me to hell? Absolutely. And, and that is the longer we go, the more and more because the church isn't addressing it more and more people are not believing in hell. How could a loving God send me to hell? You have to try to wrestle with that in the sermon. I think that's why we shy away from it. Um, We do hear a lot about love. I'm not sure how much biblical love we hear about. Uh, What we typically hear is just the modern PC tolerance, love. Um, Love, though, led Jesus to a cross. Love requires some hard things. Love is what makes you get up two o'clock in the morning and change diapers and feed babies. And, And so all we hear basically is love, which is accept everybody, as they are and the Bible doesn't even do that. Now I think we should not be judgmental. I think we should um not be but the old tolerance was I can disagree with you and we still can be good neighbors. That's biblical. You can't do that anymore. Exactly. There's exactly. just no way to that's right. We have to agree with them in order for them uh, for them to feel loved, and that's just not biblical.
1: And because obviously, love is not acceptance.
0: Exactly, it's not. You,
1: when we go back to what we're talking about with social media, my favorite, but you said you had to unfriend a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. my favorite thing on Facebook, Pastor, is the unfollow button. Absolutely. Because the unfollow button says we can still be friends, yes. but I don't have to go in the same direction you're going. Exactly. I don't have to follow in that same thing. That's right, right. And I think that the church takes a lot of criticism of it's because we're willing to be friends, yes. but we can't follow.
0: That's right. We That's just right. can't
1: follow. Yeah. And so how do you, to, to get somebody to understand it's not that we don't like you, that we can't be friends with you. It's just we can't go in that direction, and you shouldn't go in that direction. But to get somebody to look at themselves honestly in 21st century, and I'm sure they've struggled with it every century. There's always been. But how in, in this culture can you practically tell them, we want you to come to church here, we want you to be accepted, Right. In, the, in the congregation, but your sin, it, it, that can't be accepted here.
0: Right, right. Well, you have to talk about that because that becomes the issue with this whole God thing. I mean, we all love to say, oh, Jesus is Lord. The implication of that is he's the boss. Right. That means I'm not the boss. And so you have to deal with it. If, if what I do displeases God, Okay, it's gonna affect the relationship. So he's the boss. And as people in the US, we don't have a you know, we put a president in every four years. We don't have a king mindset, and very few people of the world. I mean, the royalty in England, it's not what it used to be. It's fair heads. Yeah, and so a king is whatever the king wants happens. And so that becomes the crux of the gospel. It's not just about You know, the steps you take, and you have to do that. Repentance, baptism, which is the filling of the Holy Ghost. But it's about literally this thing that we glibly talk about. It's Jesus is Lord, and we all struggle with that. We all struggle with that.
2: So Brian and I, we had a conversation on Wednesday night. What is, in your opinion— I'll tell you, he asked me a question, and I gave him an answer he wasn't expecting. Yeah. And then I turned around and asked him, and he gave me a, an answer that I wasn't expecting, but we both understood what we were talking yeah. about. What is the biggest
1: threat to our church right now? What did you say it was, Tony? My, my because th- we did a podcast that's probably never going to get aired yeah. because we got too open and too real on that <laughs> podcast. Yeah, so <laughs> it,
2: was, it was just a conversation we were having. But my, I think the biggest threat to the church— Yeah is when we no longer become united.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, Whenever unity is gone in a church and brothers are fighting against brothers and sisters are fighting against sisters, we have lost
1: our common goal.
0: Yes, yes.
1: Brian, what was yours? Mine was compromise. Yeah. And I cited as kind of my proof text behind it in a way was the scripture that says the gates of hell shall not prevail against the
0: church. So the
1: church is always going to win. It's always going to succeed. Yes. But what happens if the church quits being the church? Right. Good. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think that compromise is the greatest threat that we face.
0: Well, I see both of those because, you know, when there's disunity in the church, to me, that is a, I want to use a harsher word, but it's more and more unwise because as the culture changes... We've got to be together, it,
2: and that's not just that's not just a local assembly. No, that is the body, the church, absolutely. the kingdom.
0: Yeah. So I don't have time to be fighting with anybody. Uh, compromise is huge, huge thing for me in a local assembly. Um, my biggest concern is, and we've got incredible young people and children. But my biggest concern is that as a church, that we've quit talking about the things that we think the next generation knows, but they don't know because we've never talked about it. Woo! And so you've got to do that.
2: I have chill bumps on my arms right now.
0: So what are those subjects? Well, we're going through right now—it kind of— morphed, Um, our DNA, our children's ministry, and our youth ministry were in the auditorium on the first Tuesday of the month. We have midweek on Tuesday night. And I was just going through the series that I was normally going through with the adults, and I thought, they're in here. Let's focus on them. So we've started initially. I mean, we're going um, through—C.S. Lewis lined them out in Mere Christianity like nine— uh, basic Christian beliefs—everything from why I believe in God, why I believe in the Word of God, why I believe—back to the basics. All the basics. Now, eventually, we're—I mean—we're going to get obviously to Pentecostal doctrine, why we believe in the oneness of God. And I try to pull back my youth ministry days. I try to use illustrations. I'm, I'm trying to talk to them. Uh, but things that also have to be talked about is all of the things that culture is throwing at us. Um, biblical marriage. Biblical—you uh, want to use the—you want to use the right words for that age, but biblical sexuality, all of those things, um, creation. As opposed to evolution, we don't preach about those things. We don't talk about them.
1: I heard uh, uh, Bobby Kilman one time, and I don't know if it was a, something that he said or he was quoting Paul Mooney one time yeah. that talked about how if we don't change the way we do youth ministry, we're yeah. going to lose this generation. Yeah, I'm losing. And he was citing these discussions, yes. like you're talking about with with evolution. Yes, uh, because they're bombarded with it. Bombarded everywhere. If they, you can't go anywhere without, you know, from from grade school whenever they've get they've got books yes. about the dinosaurs. At the very beginning yes. of it is it, it has an evolutionist method. Right. And it, it, obviously there's dating and, and I'm I'm not a scientist. Yeah. I don't know how all that works. Yeah, I honestly don't know how right. it works. Uh and i don't really care how that necessarily works right. for me the proof text of christianity yes. is the cross
0: Absolutely. did
1: jesus rise from the dead
0: absolutely because
1: what paul says is if he had not risen then yes. we have yes. then our faith is in vain yes and so in, until they're able to disprove the the crucifixion and the resurrection right. i believe there's always a valid truth in christianity but, like I said, the question is implanted in the, in the minds of our youth in their biology class and yes. then in the college, for sure, yes. where they are mocked for having these That's beliefs. Right. And so we, we, we've got children that, and, and young people, students, that are fighting with these questions. Right. And where are they going to get the answers yes. from? Yes, Because the, the teacher in the school can't give them a Bible right. study.
0: All right. Right.
1: They they have to give them the curriculum that's yes. been outlined for that's them. Right. That's right. And so here they are. They're struggling with the people in their high school where I remember whenever I was in high school, and that was this wasn't very long ago. Yeah. That the kid that came out as homosexual he he was the the kid everybody kind of talked about. Yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden, as, you know, whenever it was, a, it was a way that people teased each other. Whenever I was kind of in elementary, Absolutely, yes. By the time I hit senior high, I'm yeah. talking about from about my tenth grade year till my senior year in yeah. the span of two years, that there was boldness in which people were coming out.
0: Yes, yes. Where
1: culture had just kind of shifted totally on a dime. Shifted. Where at one time it was taboo, yeah. and now it's just out in the open. Yeah. and so our students now—if you don't agree with it, you're wrong. We're yeah, wrong, exactly, and you're ignorant.
0: Right, right.
1: And so the church has to has an has to have an yes. answer for that. You
0: have to have an answer because culture has lost its ability to debate civilly. Um, and if you don't, honestly, if you don't agree anymore, you become the, the term is you're racist, whether you're racist or not. You okay. know, just so gonna th- I've
2: I've learned the very hard way that if I don't believe in the right wing, I'm a racist. Yeah. If yeah. I support our president, I'm a racist. Yes, yes. And, you know, that is, you know, Brian alluded to this in an earlier podcast. I thought you guys were having a spiritual podcast. This is as this is as spiritual. gets. Oh, as it is. Gets. Yes, Because our church is facing and our young people is yes. facing the sins of the world, yes. and they need to have answers.
0: Absolutely. And the culture we live in, we would think if we wanted to move an, an agenda, we would gradually do it. So we've been fighting right here, and the culture's taken the battle like 10 steps beyond that. And so what happens in the process, we just forget the real battle here. We're over here on these goofy things like you know how many genders there are. You know and and but we have to talk about that to help them have language. doesn't mean we have to be quote apologist and have all the answers. read man i I read Josh McDowell, I just when I'm preparing for these, I'm digging in to people who could help me give some answers and so here here we are in this society where you're a villain in this culture, absolutely.
1: You you're a a white man. Yeah, yes. That's a Christian. Absolutely. And so you've been you've been vilified. Yes, yes. You're li- you're pastoring in a a a metro city. Right. Where there are all kinds of different cultures. Yes. How do you connect with other cultures because, obviously, you cannot be an effective pastor right. in the 21st century, right. especially in your city. And there yes. are some cities you can go to, and you may be able to get by with, with right. reaching out to one ethnic group right. and yes. one race. Right. But you can't do that in Memphis.
0: Yeah. No, no, not you at all. You can't
1: be racist in Memphis. No, not at all. So ha- ha- what, do you, what is what is your—how out- and—what um, all is it that you're doing here at Faith Apostolic yeah. to to reach out to other communities?
0: Well, it's it's a work in progress for us. We're working uh, to start a Spanish ministry. We already have one started, but services and things of that nature. Of course, Memphis um, is has a lot of um, diversity. I think it starts in the pastor's home, where we're honestly not racist. That we're not talking in ways. Privately, that if it were known, every place else would. You know, sometimes we're pretty hypocritical about that. So there's got to be true love, and then people know that. You're going to have you're going to have some struggle with culture, but your church should mirror the the community that's around you. So we're in Germantown, um, and and we're we're working to that. and doing our best, but to love everybody um, really across lines, and see them as people that God loves.
2: Can a leader lead spiritually without love for that culture?
0: You know, I've seen all kind of guys be successful in one culture in different parts of the u s. To me, you've got to love all of them. And it's you know, again, back to the culture idea. Their culture is just as valid as yours. It's just a different culture. It's not wrong. It's just different. It may be wrong in your mindset. Um, in New York, I had a, somebody that came, came to visit, and we were at an Italian restaurant, and you know, the Italian bread, and he was saying, well, if these folks ever had good southern yeast rolls, if they ever had that, they'd never want this bread. And I could not convince him. Like, I think most of them have, and they this is what they choose. It Our cultures, it defines who we are. It doesn't mean the other one's wrong. You know, and the beauty of celebrating other cultures. I'm the size I am today partly because I embrace all those other cultures.
1: <laughs> I couldn't live on Burger King and McDonald's.
0: Oh no, 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 no!
1: <laughs> I gotta have a, I gotta have a Mexican restaurant in there somewhere.
2: That's right. Yes, <laughs> I'll yes. Tell you, uh, for those who don't know, uh, the reason why we're down here at Memphis at 10:37 p.m. making a podcast is we had the privilege of doing. A uh, children's service here. Uh, we did this is the second time we've done it, awesome. and I. Uh, you were just talking about culture and food, my bro. My fingers are crossed. We're going to PF
1: Chang's tomorrow.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the plan. That's oh. plan.
1: I won't be here tomorrow, so I won't, I won't be <laughs> I'm the festivities. I'm oh, sorry. Man. Oh, let's get back on track, man. I, I think I've lost my chain. I'm distracted because now I went some some low main. And, yeah, uh, yeah. So so let me let me ask you this, since we. Uh, uh, to get personal with you, um, I know with me personally, I, I I'm very self-critical of an individual, right? Because I don't ever feel like I meet up measure up right. to my own standards. And I, there are people that are probably listening to this that um, hopefully they're listening to this. Hopefully yeah. we, we didn't bomb. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, to those that are listening, that they they. Are very self-critical, or they they lack a kind of self-confidence. Right. Um, has, has there times, uh, obviously, you you probably have in your in your mind a standard of what a, a minister is, what, right. what a pastor should be. Right. Do you ever fight with the feeling of inadequacy and feel like you don't measure up to to your own standards?
0: Yeah, I definitely don't measure up to my own standard, but to me, that's okay. We have to set a bar somewhere. And we always hit a little below that. But as long as we're reaching for that bar, the self-confidence has been a work in progress for me. Uh, Early on, man, I I cut my teeth in the McCool's church. And if you know anything about Bob McCool Sr., Bob McCool Jr., they have spontaneous talent on loan from God constantly. I'm not that spontaneous. I've got to be scripted. And so I really struggled with some inferiority complex. Um, I don't know that people knew that, but a few people did. And they. one of them was Bobby McCool Jr.'s wife came to me and said, look, you are a gift to this church. You be who you are. You're you're not my husband. You're not my father-in-law. You be who you are. And it was a work in progress. But uh, yeah, I'm my hardest critic. Uh, I'm a student of... Preaching, and so I've got to be very careful. I only talk to my wife about things. I'm like, yeah. I mean, I'll critique every message. It's not because I'm being critical. I am a student of preaching.
1: I'm the exact same way. Yeah. yeah. And another thing, like with me, I don't know if you struggle with the same thing. Uh, I used to whenever before I actually started preaching fairly often, I used to listen to about six or seven sermons a day. Yeah, awesome. Because I before I was starting preaching, there was no way to to figure out how. Yeah. Because unless you're actually in the pulpit, you never really get That's to, de- right. to develop. That's right. And so I was listening to all all kinds of the spectrum of different pastors, right. all different spectrum, spectrums of of the, from the right, left, center. Yeah. I listened to everything because yeah. I tried to develop and hear how they articulated certain things right. and, and how they would connect with people. And so now that I'm actually preaching more, I feel like if I listen to those messages, now right. that I've kind of learned a little bit, or and I've had the experience of, well, he, I've actually done it a few times, right. I start kind of analyzing it, and I also catch myself kind of taking what they're doing, yeah. and I try and become that rather than be what I'm supposed right. to be. Yeah. And so with me, I've actually had to cut down how much I've listened to yeah. as far as uh, through podcasts or right. however because... Like I said, I either get critical of it or I I end up getting so focused on how I would present it rather than what's being presented.
0: Yes, yes, very good. Well, you have to find your own voice. I mean, I'm uh, the—man, my first message was in West Memphis. I think the message was verbatim, an Anthony Mangan message, (laughs) and the closing illustration was something I'd seen Wayne Huntley do. And it, you just, those are two power punches, right there. Oh my! It was phenomenal for people who didn't know. I just stole it. You know, I mean, it, it was great. Um, but learning to find your own voice because the world doesn't need another of any preacher, not another Anthony Megan, as powerful as he is, or Wayne Huntley. You want to be your own person uh, and learn. As God's
2: to, called you for a specific reason.
0: Absolutely. Well, my favorite definition of preaching is truth through a personality, and so it needs to be your personality. It needs to be who you are.
2: So uh, we're going to do my all-time favorite segment right here where you speak to a specific listener. Okay. Um, you've went through a couple of transitions, and sometimes they're not the easiest of no, times. No, they never are. I want you to speak to the listener who may be listening right. that are at the crossroads of transition and speak into their life right now because you you are a guy who went... How many miles from home?
0: Oh, it's 1100 miles.
2: You went 1100 right. miles from home and you knew nobody there but your wife. Right. You 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 had a newborn at the time, correct? Yes, yes. And you didn't know if you were Steve Smith called or yep. Jesus called yeah, when yeah, you right. went. Right. You know, we feel like we know right. God's calling, but we that safety net is always real nice. Yes. I want you to speak into the life of someone who's at the crossroads of transition right now.
0: So if you're in a transition of moving into planting a church or stepping out of the ministry, be confident in what you know God has called you to do. Um, if you're transitioning out of one ministry into the next, take the long view. Don't, don't do anything um, in, in the moment that you will regret later. One of the hardest things to do is resign a church, particularly a church you've started. Uh, we sat down with every member of the church, every family of the church, re- resigned individually so that they would have an opportunity to talk to us. And not everything was wonderful. So,
2: How, how hard was that?
0: Oh, it was, it was painful. Um, it, it took me a while. Um, I, at that point, I was preaching a message a lot about Abraham and Isaac. And Abraham offering up Isaac, and I was about like my learning was a call to preach. I'm like, God, you call me to New York. I mean, we only celebrate people who have been there 20 years. I plan on being here forever. And he, he spoke to me. I was, I was on my way to go preach that message at the church on a Sunday morning. I'm praying, and he said, I'm asking you to give me your Isaac. And I couldn't hardly drive to the church. Um, it, it was so, so difficult. Um, but you want to take the long view. You know, I've got a friend in New York who says there's a right way to come in and there's a right way to go out. So you never want to leave. Even though some were very hurt, you wanted to love them because, again, time has a way of healing things. You don't want to make the matters worse. Um, So wherever you are, trust God. For me, I've got friends, and I think God deals with his own personality. I've got friends that God calls them, and, man, they just jump out and go. That's that's good. For me, he was— I knew he was leading me away from New York, but he wasn't telling me where I was to go. Um, And that was frustrating. But I'm a planner. That
2: that had to be scary.
0: Yeah, it was scary to some ways. You know, I I begged him to what I called replug my brain in, you know, because what I was facing as a church planner, I could drive into any town and have a burden and a passion and know how to get a church started that didn't have a church, but in my own town, I'd lost the vision. I wasn't burned out. Scott Sistrunk, the North American Missions Director, don't I don't think I'm putting words in his mouth. That's basically how he moved from church to church. When God would unplug the vision for that congregation, he knew it was time to move on. And so trust the process. God's not going to leave you. I mean, there are times we move from one place to another and we go through a hallway. You want to stay in that hallway as short as possible. But don't move until you know what God wants you to do, and then move in it and trust trust the elders and I mean, I've had a pastor and bishop in my life that if they didn't give my their thumbs up and I didn't go to them saying, "Hey, I want to go to Memphis, would you please give your approval?" Um, they were totally on board. You need that that spiritual oversight in your life to help you through the process uh, uh,
1: Pastor Smith did I reach out to you to do this podcast or did Tony?
0: I think Tony did.
1: Uh, Do you know why that is?
0: No.
1: Well, number one is because I don't know you. Yeah. I've just met you for the first time tonight. Right. The number two reason why is because I fear rejection. Yeah. Yeah. Because I fear calling someone and asking them to be on the podcast and them tell me no. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: I dated my wife for seven years. Yeah. Do you know why it took me seven years to propose to her?
0: Yeah, afraid she'd say no.
1: No. no. Yeah. I knew her. (laughs) I was afraid her dad would tell me no. Ah, gotcha. Because I feared rejection. You pastor people that they obviously every church I'm sure struggles with people come in, yeah, and then they leave, right and I wonder, I've never been in the position you've been in right, but I wonder, do you struggle with rejection when people leave whether I mean they may be the most noble reasons in the world of they right. they got a job you just can't pass up, sure. But I'm sure you've had some that either thought you slided them yeah. or whatever, and they left. Yeah. Or people saw a better opportunity elsewhere. Right. And obviously, we all, in a way, face rejection. There are things yeah. that we face. Right. People that they have loved ones that walked out on them sure. or a, a dad that wasn't there in their life right. or a mother that wasn't in their life. Um, how did, Have you struggled with do you, Like I said, do, do you feel a sense of rejection when someone leaves under your ministry? Right. And to those that like myself right. that struggles with the fear of rejection right. or actually having been rejected, and now they're trying to recover from yeah. that, how do you minister to those people?
0: Well, for me, uh, the struggle of rejection was very severe in New York. So you're planting a church. Maybe apostolics move around the corner from you. They visit your church. They drive an hour and a half to another church. That was always very difficult for me. There was a point I started praying, God, if T.F. Tenney moves around the corner from me, and if he's not going to our church, I don't want to know about it. And then I said, "Ah, we could do coffee every once in a while. I'll be all right to know about it. But that was a struggle because you're trying to build something. And I think the natural response is when people leave to feel some rejection, I think I'm better at it now Um, than it used to be. My bigger issue in Memphis, because we have so many backsliders, is are they going to a church? Um, If they're going to an apostolic church, then I'm okay with it. But rejection is a hard thing. Um, You know, I heard a preacher one time say he had the gift of goodbye, um, meaning that if God was calling people away from his church, he wanted to hug them on the way out. And there's a grain of truth there because people who feel that they should leave if you hold on to them— they typically are not going to be functioning very well in in your church. So I pastor from a viewpoint that I really want what's best for people. In New York, uh, there were three other apostolic churches around us, but they were all in different districts. One went in upstate New York, um, one in Connecticut, no, there was a, and another one in New York Metro. So they weren't on three different—well, they were, but we were in New York Metro District. When somebody would come to our church for the first time, I would ask them, have you checked out this church, this church, this church? And I did that because I didn't—we were small enough church. I didn't want them to come, get connected to our church, then find out about another church that was a better fit for them. And then it's like duct tape being ripped up. In difficulty, what I discovered though is a pretty cool church growth tactic because every time they came back the next Sunday, they said, "This is our church," because they felt comfortable that they were being pastored by somebody with an open hand. Uh, it's always difficult, but sometimes it's it's best for people to be in other places. You can't pastor everybody. Um, some people need a different kind of pastoring style, um, and and that's okay as long as as long as they're doing what's best for their family, and you feel like. I say best for their family in a very loose sense. You feel like they're they're not running from the things that they should be uh, a part of. Um, God gives you direction, but I'm very, very slow to say, no, you aren't to leave. Because um, I'm not saying God has every, anything to do with it. A lot of folks that transition, they just transition. But the rejection is difficult. Um, we all face that. You know, I, I could give you an answer right now because I'm doing pretty good on that. But tomorrow um, I could have somebody say that I wasn't expecting that they're leaving and it bothers me. Uh, for me, though, nobody's ever left a church i pastor pastored unless I kind of saw it coming, you know. And so— um, It's
2: not an overnight process. Yeah, it's
0: not an overnight process. And sometimes it's just not a fit— it's just not a fit. And there are people who, what, what I've discovered here in Memphis, because, you know, there are a lot of, several apostolic churches, uh, typically people who come to our church and they won't ever connect with me, the, the 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 clock is ticking. At some time they're leaving. I mean, if they won't go out to eat with me, if they won't sit down with me, the clock is ticking. And you'd be amazed how many. That's the story. Um, I've never faced abject rejection. So I, I don't. Again, that's one of those things I wouldn't. I wouldn't act like I had. So I really can't tell you exactly how to overcome rejection. I've been hurt. I've been abused. I've been. Everybody has the pastors. Um, but it's one of those things. Get up one day at a time. Keep moving on. Um, a book that I absolutely adore is called "And David Perceived He Was King," by Dale Mast. I think it's the guy's name. And the concept is. It is great to know what God can do. It's almost as good, if not better, to know what God can do through you. And working to become comfortable in your own skin and just saying, everybody's not going to like me. Everybody doesn't like my preaching style. But if God called me, there's going to be a subset of folks that really grow under my ministry. And so I'm, I'm okay with that.
1: Have you ever sat across the desk from somebody that they said, Pastor, I just don't know how I'm going to make it because I'm facing this. Yeah. And when they said it, you said, I'm facing it too.
0: Yeah. I've mm-hmm. never had that exact experience. Um, but, you know, we I think God makes sure that all of us have struggle so that we're real. Um, and realness is huge in ministry. I mean, when you act like you've got it all together, um Man, you know, the old joke is I've got it all together, but I misplaced it. I have no idea where it's at. You know, I mean, it's important to be real, Um, not necessarily to preach in such a way that you make everybody feel uncomfortable because you're being too transparent, but to be honest, because we all struggle.
1: Uh, Pastor Smith, we've greatly enjoyed our conversation Likewise. with you tonight. Um, to our listeners that have greatly enjoyed this, where do they go from here? What, what would you suggest? You, you've mentioned a lot of books to yeah. them. Um, where would you steer someone that, that's wanting to start their library up? Um, Give us your go-to book.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I've the got... Bible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Outside of the Bible, yeah. I've probably got 10 that I just love, and I don't have them uh, just it'll be off the top of my head. But... Um, the one, and David perceived he was king, is kind of a new one to me. There's another one about Phil Pringle about leadership. I think the seven um, principles of leadership, just phenomenal. Uh, there's one called Leadership Pain, uh, just phenomenal. Uh, when I am when I am looking for a book, I usually go to Amazon, I go to Goodreads, whatever subject I'm looking for, and I just start looking for reviews. And if there's 500 reviews and it's four-and-a-half-star Good book. Yeah, it's a good book. Um, years ago, there was a—I forget which company—but they would give you. I read on Kindle. They'd give you a book every week. You get a free one. I quit doing it because there were just too many that my ratings weren't that great. You know, I'd like it's not costing me that much money to get a good book. Um, but I would start. I, I read on Kindle, and uh, through Kindle, I'm able to read about a hundred books a year. It's because if you get a Kindle Fire. Um, they have a text-to-speech feature. So literally, the busier I am, the more I read. Now, my oldest son says, you don't read anything. You just listen to it. Not in college, not in class. I'm just trying to get information. So whether it's Audible, the reason I like Kindle...
1: Tell your son to catch up to the 21st century. (laughs) (laughs)
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. (laughs) The reason I love Kindle is I can highlight it and then go back and find it and, and use it.
2: So... Brian has said we appreciate it. This is our, our last uh, last question for you. Give us your final thought. Is there anything we should have asked you, or is there something that's on your heart that you've been um, dealing with your church about, like something? Let's end this with an encouragement here. Yeah, yeah. Give me something what you got. You
0: know, kind of where I'm at, and I've been this way for a long time, uh, particularly on ministry uh, and people in churches. I just wonder what would happen if there would be a good old fashioned baptism of respect. Uh, among ministers. And it goes back to those talents. It's amazing to me. God will put somebody with one talent, maybe in a town that we wouldn't want to pastor, and if we're not careful, we really don't respect them. We look and say, well, their numbers aren't that great. We respect the five talent. But my concern is not what talent level I am, but how well I'm producing with what God gave me. So we'll celebrate all day long a 10-talent person who's producing eight talents, And overlook the one talent. And I just wonder how it's gonna fare when we get to heaven. Because one's reaching their redemptive potential and one's not. And so I just think if we would respect across the board, thank you for what you do. Thank you for being on the team. Thank you for what you I just that's where that's my heartbeat right now.
2: Because we've talked about this in prior conversations with other ministers and other guests. We're a body. Absolutely. We are all building the kingdom.
0: Every one of us.
2: We have a responsibility, and it's it's not to tear down the, the brother across the street.
0: Absolutely,
2: that's 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 a great heartbeat to have.
0: Yeah. Smith. there's a, a man who pastors in Dallas, D.G. Hargrove, and I love an analogy he gave one time. He said we had an elder saint that was working with a brand new saint that had transferred from another absolute church in the area. They were work, working in the kitchen, and the new saint started running down another church, and the elder saint turned. Pointing their finger and said, "Oh, haven't you heard? We, we don't do that here." And so I think it's a very powerful thing. We're all on the same team. We're all going to do things a little differently, but we're on the same team whether we like it or not. We're building the same kingdom. Absolutely, absolutely. And so to have genuine respect uh, for those around us is, it, I think, God would be well pleased with that.
2: Well, Pastor Smith, thank you so much for well, sitting down with us this late. Um, guys, like us on uh, Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Uh, Instagram, um, you know, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. Leave us a review. Leave us an email.
1: You have been listening to The Crucial Conversation.